0: Amen. You may take your seats. Let's go to the word. Let's go to the word of God, the written word of God. Let us go there to hear it read. The written word of God, read word of God that leads us to the living word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We come to 2nd Samuel chapter 5, 2nd Samuel chapter 5 today. And so if you would please give your attention to the reading of this glorious Beautiful, powerful word of the living God. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are bone and your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was over us, king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Now David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. And at Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, And at Jerusalem he reigned over all of Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day... Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inwards and David began became greater and greater for the Lord the God of hosts was with him. And Hiram king of Tyre sent messengers to David and cedars also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. After he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ipphar, Eliashua, and Njaphia, Elishama, Eliada, and Ephilet. And when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. And now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, And David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there. And David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up, go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. When you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. The word of God for the people of God. Imagine with me going up into the attic of a beloved family member's house. A beloved family member uh, who has, has recently passed away. And you're up in the attic and you're looking around at all the stuff that can accumulate in an attic and you see a box, a shoe box. And on that shoe box in her distinctive and lovely script are written two words, photos, memories. And with sadness, but also a measure of hopeful expectancy, you go and you get that shoebox and you walk down the creaking stairs. And as you're walking through the hall, you catch a faint smell of mothballs from the closet and you move into the kitchen and you cross over that linoleum floor to that beloved kitchen table the table that you used to love to sit at and watch that beloved family member do her magic in the kitchen. And you go to that table and you take the lid off of that box and then you gently slide out the old photos. Some of them are Polaroids. Some of them are 35 millimeter and and some even older. And you slide those Photographs out on that formica top table. And there they are, lying on that table in a jumbled, beautiful collage. There before you are snapshots, snapshots of a life, of a life that, of a person that, that you love. There, there, there are certain photos that are from childhood, there, there are other photos that are from the teenage years, then a few others from Uh, The age when she was a young mother. And then some from her older years. And you glance down at that collage, different years, different places, no rhyme or reason. And you think about it, and you begin to take in something of the beauty of God's ways with this person that you have so loved. This chapter is something like that. This chapter, we have various little, it's not one just long extended narrative. we got a bunch of little vignettes. We've got a, to, to use my analogy, we've got a bunch of photos. And, and the author of Second Samuel, he's not really interested in some sort of boring, strict chronology. So some things that are placed here in this chapter happen later and some things happen earlier. And he's not really interested in making sure we've got all of our timeline just right. The photos are on on the table before us. And and, and these are photos of someone who I suspect by now, if we've been working our way through uh, 1st and now into 2nd Samuel, uh, they're photos of a man that we love. They're photos uh, of King David. They're photos that are revealing things. But what are they revealing? If we might put it this way, here we have photos that, one, are, are revealing something to us of the promises of God. Two, we have photos that are revealing something to us of God's purposes for kingship. We're also seeing, sadly, photos of the sinful practice of a beloved King David. And then lastly, we're seeing photos of God's divine protection of his people. Photos of promises, photos of purposes, photos of sinful practices, photos of divine protection. First, photos, photos of promises. Verses 1 through 10. Uh, 1 through 10, we actually have two scenes. We have two vignettes. We've got verses 1 through 5 and then verses 6 through ten. These short vignettes each have a different focus. And with each giving us a better understanding of kingdom, giving us a better understanding of king, and giving, giving us a better understanding of the king that we need. And in these two we see the focus is upon the promises of God. God's promise to David and also God's promise to Abraham. God's covenant promises to his covenant people. God's covenant gracious promises. And, and those promises are shown to us in opposition to, or versus, two seeming obstacles. The obstacle of opposition, human opposition to God's promises and the seeming opposition of time. Long expanses of time. Opposition and time. Verses 1-5. through five. The promises of God against the opposition of man. The leaders of these other tribes, the northern tribes, the tribes other than Judah, they have come now, right? And with the death of uh, Ishbosheth, they they do the right thing. They come to David. They come to submit themselves to his kingship. They come to anoint him as their king, not just as a tribal chief, over Judah but the king over all of Israel and they argue their case before the David to whom they come to submit to they argue their case in an interesting way they come and they acknowledge that he is first of all one of them one of them right behold we are your bone and flesh words that are reminiscent of all the way back in the garden of Eden All the way back to Adam and Eve. We are kin. We are connected. You are as if you are our husband. And we are your people. We are your bride. Then they argue that they will submit to him based upon his leadership. Right? It was you who led us out and brought in Israel. Yes, Saul was our king, but you were the leader. You were the one who, were, you were the one who was winning the battles. But most interesting, interestingly, they, they reason for, the, for their coming to anoint him as king, they, for their acknowledging him as king. They reason it based on the promise of God. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. They base their argument of submitting themselves to him based upon the promise of God. A promise that had come way earlier, right? Hadn't Samuel anointed him when he's a young man? And yet it takes so long for for it to be seen that truly he is the king over all of Israel. And during that time period... What does he face or what does the promise face? It faces opposition again and again and again at every turn. From the madness of Saul, the jealousy of Saul, to the reluctance of the northern tribes to come under his headship, his kingship, to the scheming of Abner and to even the rash self-seeking of a friend like Joab. The fulfillment of the promise met opposition. But here's the point. Our Lord's promises are certain no matter the opposition. Our Lord's promises are certain no matter the intensity of opposition. When the Lord makes a promise, no human, no sinful, no evil opposition will thwart his Promises. Christian parent, grieving over the waywardness of your child, let that sink in. Christian, wondering when your next job is going to come, let that sink in. Christian, battling some ferocious, besetting sin. Let that sink in. The Lord's promises will be fulfilled no matter what the opposition is, no matter how intense it is. Our Lord's promises are certain. But it's not just our Lord's promises against the backdrop of opposition that the writer of 2 Samuel 5 wants us to consider, but he also wants us to see... That God's promises will be fulfilled no matter how long it takes. The second vignette, verses 6 through 10, has that that focus. It, It is easy for believers who have read the promises of God to begin to grow weary in waiting. Oh Lord, how long? When will this be fulfilled? I thought you said this was going to happen for your people. And yet, we keep facing problem after problem after problem. Verses 6 through 10 is a fascinating passage. It's a difficult passage. It's a hard passage to unravel. Uh, We've got some fairly clear things. We've got David wanting to take over Jerusalem, right? Take it from the Jebusites. We've got the Jebusites who are taunting him. They're crude, taunting. Yeah, yeah you you're not going to be able to do this even even the blind and the lame will ward you off and then we have david hating the blind and the lame and i think what that's really referencing is he is he's actually referencing the taunters he's not Referencing those who are actually physically blind or lame. They, they have said, they have taunted him, oh, even the blind and lame, you know, they, can, they can repel you. You can't defeat them. And he says, so that's what you are? Well, I hate you and you're going to be defeated. And they are. I don't think he's actually speaking about physically blind and lame people. I, I mean, we'll get to, uh, in, in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, we'll get to how he kindly treats the lame uh, Ishba, Mephibosheth. And yet here, he's got this language of, of hating the blind and lame. So then it's kind of hard to miss when we come to the son of David entering into this very same Jerusalem. And entering in and he goes to the temple and he drives out, the money changers, right? And what's the next thing that we are told there in the gospel accounts? What's the very next thing that happens in Jerusalem? Matthew 21, 14 tells us, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. This fascinating section here in 2 Samuel 5, but the point that I want to make is this. The vignette, the photo, is about the promises of God, and this photo tells us that time is no match for the promises of God. What's going on here is the fulfillment of a promise made to Abraham all the way back In Genesis chapter 15, keep your finger here, flip back to Genesis 15. Some 800 years before what is happening in 2 Samuel 5, we read in this great and amazing passage of Genesis 15 where God makes covenant with Abram. We read verse 17 and following. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, to your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites. Well, by the time of David, the Kenites have been defeated. The Kenizzites, them too. The Canaanites, those folks as well. The Hittites, yep. The Perizzites, yep. The Rephaim, yep. The Amorites, yes. The Canaanites, yes. The Girgashites, yes. And the Jebusites, no. Not until here. 800 years later. God had made this promise to Abraham, and no matter how long it took, it is going to be fulfilled, and it was. This passage helps those who are weary in waiting. Weary in waiting. Are you weary in waiting upon all the good promises of God to be fulfilled in your life? It may have took 800 years, but guess what? God is true to his promises. In his time, dear ones. In his time. Photos of promises. Photos also, and we'll be quick here, of purposes. Photos of purposes. I, you see this in verse 2, and you see it in verses 11 through 12. In verse 2. In the promise that has been made, we are told the purpose of the kingship of David. You shall be shepherd of my people, Israel. And you shall be prince over Israel. You shall be a shepherd king. And we know that Jesus takes up this image, don't we? He is the what? The great shepherd And so whenever we think about kingship according to God's plan, kingship's always in the context of shepherding. Shepherding always gives us the flavor of the kingship God gives to us in his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the kingship he was giving to Israel in David. Shepherds lead and they care for sheep. David is going to be the anti-Saul. Saul is a king through bullying. David is going to be a king through blessing. A shepherd king. His rule, his position, his being crowned is going to be for the care of others. And that's made explicit in verse 12, is it not? And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel... And he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. For others. Not for his glory, but for the blessing of others. To all those would-be shepherds, under-shepherds of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that includes every man who has been ordained and set apart for the ministry of being an elder. And that includes every man who's set apart for the ministry of being a minister. Would-be shepherds. Would-be under-shepherds. Take heed. Your position, your authority, your, your being an elder or a minister is for Others, It's for caring tenderly for others. It's for leading. Um, our evangelical world, our broader evangelical world, has been rocked in recent months with high-profile celebrity pastors falling, and oftentimes falling for abuse of power think of the story of James McDonald, who was an abusive leader and he has fallen. And the news just recently in the past what few days it seems, the CEO of a network of churches called Acts 29, Steve Timness is removed from his position as CEO. Why? Because he was a bully. He was abusive in his power. And brothers and sisters, i got books by him on my shelf It strikes close to home Road church, uh, everyday church gospel communities on mission total church a radical reshaping around gospel and community and yet how was he living out his own life as a shepherd Lee take heed All ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ take heed. All elders of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ take heed. Photos of promises, photos of the purposes of leaders, but also, sadly, photos of sinful practices. Again, briefly, you see that in verses 13 through 16. And here we go again, right? We've seen this again. We've seen it before. David isn't faithful to one wife. David takes more wives and more concubines. More wives and more concubines. Yes, the Lord gives him through all those wives and concubines, a lot of children, and that house is built up. But it's built up, why? Because of David's sinfulness. Oh, how we need a faithful son of David. Instead of this David. Photos of promises. Photos of purposes. Photos of even of sinful practices. You know every photo on the table is not necessarily flattering is it? But lastly photos of protection. Protection. We see these two battles with the Philistines at the conclusion of chapter 5. We see how David despite his sin. Despite his sinfulness, despite his uh, infidelity, we might say, despite him taking on wives and concubines, in other ways, he is a very faithful king. And one of the ways he's a very faithful king is that he's a, he's a man, he's a, he's, he's a king of prayer. He seeks protection through prayer. And the protection, does it come? Absolutely. Divine protection comes through his prayer and it, com- it comes with great and mighty power. Notice verse 20. And David came to Baal, or Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. It's, it's a bursting through, sort of like a water bursting through a dike. And that's what the Lord does. He comes bursting through. And then notice verse 24. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of balsam trees, then rouse yourself for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. Out goes our great and sovereign king as the great warrior king, as the leveler. As if he is that king who's riding out into the enemy throng first. And he raises his sword and he turns around and all of his followers follow into battle. Don't tone down that imagery, Christian. Our God is a warrior. He battles He leads his people into battle against the forces of wickedness. Don't tone it down. Our God is not weak. We do not have a mamby-pamby God. Those sorts of gods get carried off and thrown into the trash heap. Our God marches out. He, He rustles the tops of the trees. He moves and his people follow and the Philistines fall interestingly enough this is the last time basically that we're going to hear the Philistines these two divinely led and blessed battles will remove Philistines from the picture there will be a little reference to them uh, a little bit later but they're basically done this does them in these two battles. David goes into uh, the valley of Rephaim, the place of giants. Well, he's the giant slayer. And not only is he going as a giant slayer, his God is marching before him, slaying giants. You know, the word Philistine has become, in our vocabulary, a symbol word for us, right? To call someone a Philistine is not a nice thing to call them A Philistine means somebody's crude. They're they're God-defiant. They're a God-defiant person. They're a might is right person. They they don't have good fine tastes. They're, They're evil and they're wicked. Don't miss the point. Philistines don't last. Philistines fall. Philistines fall on the battlefield. They are not ultimately and finally triumphant. No, our God is. And our God is through his king, David, here. And our God is through the Son of God, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is victorious through Jesus Christ and all those who are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, if they have faith in him. His king always and ultimately defeats Philistines. And this world is full of them. Reverse the imagery of, if you're a Tolkien fan, reverse the imagery of the Battle of Helm's Deep. The Battle of Helm's Deep, you've got all those wicked, powerful, uh, I can't even say the word, the orcs and all the rest on whatever uh, whatever words that Tolkien chose. The wicked forces are come marching, marching down on the good city. Reverse it. The bad guys are in the city. They're in the fortress. They're in the stronghold. And God marches with his people in ultimate and final victory. Westminster Shorter Catechism 26 asks the following question. How does Christ execute the office of a king? It answers... Christ executeth the office of king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. It's a beautiful verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we read verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Christ is leading us this day, brothers and sisters, according to the great promises of God. He is leading us into battle. And we battle... All those wicked forces, knowing he's going to be triumphant, and we battle by spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. How do we battle Philistines? Through loving deeds and gospel proclamation. That's what you're called to this day, brothers and sisters. Know this. The Father never reneges on his promises. Christ will be victorious. And he will be victorious through us. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for the promises of your word, which are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are sure, no matter the opposition, they are sure. No matter the time it takes for them to come to fulfillment, they will come to fulfillment. And you do so through that great shepherd king, the one who has lived and laid down his life for us, for Israel, for the people of God. Help us now to follow humbly after him into the battle that you call us this season and all the seasons of our life. And may we battle in humility, may we battle in faith, may we battle in love, may we battle in gospel proclamation. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.